0: very welcome from uh, middle east institute uh, national university of singapore Uh, i welcome my name is uh, uh, asif shuja i'm a senior research fellow at middle east institute your host today and uh, we have gathered here to have our webinar on the topic iran gcc dynamics and regional security and uh, towards that end on behalf of uh, my institution middle east institute i welcome all the dignitaries, uh, uh, professors, academics, and from all Walk of Life who have joined us uh, this afternoon from Singapore. And uh, we are here joined uh, with uh, three uh, stellar uh, uh, panelists uh, from uh, 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 different parts of the world. And I would like to introduce them uh, for this uh, conference. We have the first speaker for uh, this uh, afternoon's uh, talk Uh, whose name is uh, Dr. Abdullah Sagar. He's a Saudi expert on Gulf politics and strategic issues. Uh, He is the founder and chairman of the Gulf Research Center, a global think tank based in Jeddah with a well-established worldwide network of partners and offices in both the Gulf region and Europe. He has also chaired and moderated Syrian opposition meetings in Riyadh. Dr. Sagar holds a PhD in politics and international relations from Lancaster University. Uh, Welcome, uh, Dr. Sagar. We also have Dr. Abdullah Babud, who is an academic from Oman, who is currently the chair of the state of Qatar for Islamic area studies and a visiting professor at the School of International Liberal Studies, Waseda University in Tokyo, Japan. He previously held the position of the director of the Gulf Studies Center at Qatar University and the director of the Gulf Research Center at the University of Cambridge, UK. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Babud. He was also our uh, former colleague here at Middle East Institute. Uh, Our third speaker is uh, Dr. Dina Aswandiari, who is a senior advisor at the International Crisis Group for the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, Previously, she was a fellow in the Middle East Department of the Century Foundation, and an International Security Program Research Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's uh, Balefort Center for Science and International Affairs. Uh, We welcome uh, Dr. Dina Svandyari and uh, just a small announcement related to uh, our third speaker, Dr. Svandyari. She had a very uh, uh, pressing engagement uh, uh, right after this, uh, right during this time, but she has kindly agreed to stay up until the major portion of question and answer so after one hour or so, she may be uh, leaving us slightly early from the scheduled time. But uh, we thank you so much for sticking around, Dr. Svandyari. And uh, uh, before uh, going uh, ahead with our three speakers, uh, let me just inform the usual uh, usual uh, uh, techniques related to asking question and answer related to questions around. You have uh, the two different uh, functions, you can either uh, type your question in the chat function, and uh, I can either read it out. Otherwise, uh, you may use the full functionality of Zoom, uh, that is microphone or video, which is very rare, very few organizations uh, uh, provide the full Zoom function, we, uh, we do that. So please uh, have the full utility, you, use it fully. And uh, before going ahead with the three speakers, uh, let me just introduce very briefly uh, this topic because all of us have gathered here and we all know the current dynamics under which we are discussing this uh, Iran-GCC relationship. Because uh, two very important uh, events have happened and all of us are aware, uh, the Abraham Accords through which uh, four important countries have normalized their relationship with uh, Israel. And uh, there's a talk that more can join. So in one way, it actually gives uh, increase le- legitimacy to Israel, and also enhances the partnership or the friendship with some other Arab countries. So this is a new, uh, new dimension in the geopolitics of Middle East that has been added. The other important uh, element that is currently happening is the nuclear talk with Iran that the world power are doing, uh, especially for the uh, resurrection of this particular deal by the reintroduction of USA as a partner who had actually left that deal. So these are two important events under which we are looking at the relationship between two important element of the entire security parameter of the Middle East, that is Iran at one side and GCC at other side. So uh, we know the major countries of GCC, especially Saudi Arabia also have very important role to play here. So we will look at into three different aspects uh, in our uh, webinar, the first of course, uh, we will uh, look into the major security uh, parameters for two different sides, uh, GCC at one side and Iran at w- the other side. What are their respective security concerns? So, uh, our first speaker, uh, Dr. Sandyari, will highlight that particular aspect. Then we will move on to the uh, second aspect of uh, this particular thing, and that would be. Uh, to look into the common fields of cooperation or partnership between the, these two different regions whether there are some low hanging fruits that we can grab and there could be better peace deal between these two regions and that uh, we will be uh, uh, that will be covered by our second speak- speaker dr sagar and by amalgamation of all these elements that we have gathered from these two speakers and we will now turn on to our third speaker dr Babud, Uh, who would be trying to uh, look into uh, whether there is a possibility of any security arrangement uh, at a broader level, uh, looking into the major interest of these two particular uh, elements, that is Iran and GCC. And of course, uh, we would be very delighted if he could also look into some other players uh, very briefly, uh, like, for instance, Israel, which is a very important player in the region, how does this security arrangement uh, uh, AIDS or a base their own uh, respective security concerns. So with these uh, few introductory words, we now move on to our first speaker, uh, Dr. Dina Svandiari. Uh, Dr. Svandiari, the floor is yours. You may speak for 10 minutes and all the speakers may speak for 10 to 15 minutes, then we can move to questions around. Thank you so much, Dr. Svandiari.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your invitation. It's a pleasure to be amongst you and a pleasure to set, share the stage with uh, Dr. Sagar and Dr. Baboud. Um, So uh, as you've already said, I'm going to talk a little bit about security perceptions in the region um, and just give a quick overview of that uh, before we move on. So generally, uh, I would argue that security perceptions in the region are really quite mismatched. The GCC states tend to view Iran as a greater concern than Iran views them. Iran tends to historically view them as more of a nuisance and a lesser security concern than the other way around, and that's because Iran aspires to to play in the big leagues, to to work with the big major powers. Um, but for the GCC, amongst others, Iran really is a primary security threat. Um, I'll start with the the Iranian side. So for Iran, its objectives technically are no different to any other state in its foreign policy. Uh, It wants to preserve its territorial integrity. It wants to secure its borders. uh, It wants to expand ties with other countries and increase its influence in the region. And it wants to be a force to be reckoned with um, generally. Uh, Tehran believes that regional security should be managed by the states in the region, which again is another area where there's a bit of a mismatch of perceptions. Its priorities, tend to be global. Uh, So it focuses on dealing with the US, with the Europeans, on having a seat at negotiating tables for major issues, uh, on dealing with the P5 plus one, the five permanent members of the Security Council in Germany on the nuclear front. In the region, I would argue Iraq is its number one priority. That's because it shares uh, a porous border of over 900 miles Um, It has a real constituency in Iraq. It's a partner, uh, particularly at a time uh, and like an economic and political partner, particularly at a time where the world powers were trying to isolate Iran. And of course, the last time Iran and Iraq didn't see eye to eye, Iran had to suffer an eight year devastating war. So it wants to make sure that that will never be repeated. Then in order of priority, I think its second priority really is Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a major issue for Iran because it's a real success story. It is an example, uh, a perfect example from Tehran's perspective of how its model of increasing its influence in the region through non-state actors uh, works. And so for that reason, it really wants to maintain and nurture that relationship. And then lower down, you have, Syria, for example, which is its last real state ally, Uh, and after that um, comes the Gulf Arab States and Yemen. Uh, I think Yemen is an even lesser concern than the Gulf Arab States because to Iran's eyes, it has no real interests in Yemen, and it uses Yemen more as a chip to be a nuisance to Saudi Arabia rather rather than to do anything concrete with it. Today, uh, so those are its global priorities. Today, uh, there are a couple of key themes um, that Iran has in its foreign policy and in its security concerns. First is a frustration at the JCPOA process. A lot of Iranians are surprised at where they are today and why they're still here and why this process is dragging out. Um, And also they firmly believe that there's no room for discussion on anything else Uh, with the world powers until this is resolved first. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not willing to hold discussions on regional issues, as we're going to see, but the idea that it can talk about anything else with the major powers before dealing with the nuclear issue, I think is is kind of off the table. The problem with this whole JCPOA process is the impact it's gonna have on the region, which will feed into GCC perceptions of Iran, of course. Iran is likely to lash out similar to what it has so far in the region, no matter what happens. If a deal doesn't happen, then Iran has an incentive to do some chest thumping in the region and show that it's a force to be reckoned with as payback for not allowing the nuclear deal to to be resolved, basically. If we do get to a resolution of the nuclear issue, then it's very possible that much like after 2015, Iran will also lash out to a certain extent, although in my view, lesser in the region, because it has to show that, okay, we made compromises in one area, so now we're going to act up in another. So that's one area, the frustration with the JCPOA process. The second is this tension it has with the Gulf Arab states. For Iran, it's also a nuisance. It wants to resolve some of these tensions But it remains a useful pressure point in the region because the Gulf Arab states are generally close to the US. And of course, they are within proximity of Iran. So it's easy to target their infrastructure and their interests in the region. Um, Iran so far, I think, has decided it's going to pick apart the Gulf Arab states and deal with them bilaterally rather than dealing with them as a group. Um, And then the third thing that it's looking at right now is the these normalization agreements at the beginning i think the iranians thought this isn't really much of a game changer it's more of the same the gulf arab states have been dealing with israel for very long time and iran knows it Um, today i think there is a little bit of nervousness creeping into the way the iranians view these deals because they're noticing the military dimensions of the deal the fact that the israelis now have access to persian gulf waters uh, and ports in the region that's a concern. The fact that the Israelis and the Emiratis are talking about things like missile defense, potentially, and drones—that's a concern. So that's another thing that Iran is looking at. I'm now going to move to the other side of the Gulf very quickly, uh, and talk a little bit about GCC security perceptions. And of course, my co-panelists can can uh, can fill in because I think they're better placed than I am to talk about it. For them, Iran is, a, is their, one of their main rivals. It's an ideological rival, it's a religious rival, and even represents a different state system, a different vision for what a state should look like in the region. And this rivalry is longstanding. We tend to attribute it to the Islamic, to, to the starting point to the Islamic revolution in 1979, but even before this government, um, the rivalry was there. Even under the Shah, there was a rivalry, particularly between the Saudis and the Iranians, um, although obviously the ideological dimension got worse after the revolution. Um, the, uh, the, for, for the Gulf Arab states, Iran's influence and, and immersion into Arab affairs is a real problem. They want it to get out. Um, And they're frustrated with the model that the Iranians use to spread their influence. So this idea that Iran reaches out to proxies in the region. Other security concerns of the Gulf Arab states are widespread. Of course, there is, you know, the idea of, of Islamism, which poses a problem to some members of the of the GCC, the Emiratis, in particular, who see a lot of things through the prism Of the spread of Islamism in the region and how that poses a threat to their vision and their model of secular Islam. Uh, And more importantly, I would argue in some respects, particularly today, this this, uh, fear of what the U.S. is going to do in the region. Um, There is a certain security dependence on the Americans, although I would argue that is lesser now than it was a few years ago. And this idea that the US is leaving or pivoting away from the region poses a real problem. It is no longer a reliable ally. Um, This started as early as the Arab Spring and has been building up over the course of the last few years. Today, Iran still remains a key concern for the Gulf Arab states, although for some of them, obviously lesser so. I know I'm generalizing, but for example, for the Omanis, Iran isn't a security threat. Um, They are used to engaging with the Iranians, for example. As a result of this threat, diversification for them has become key. They've built relationships with other security partners. Their ultimate goal is to be self-sufficient in their security. um, But in the meantime, they understand that that can't be achieved, and so it's important for them to talk to the Russians, to the Chinese, and to really build relationships with others. And this is the context in which we've had the normalization agreements, the development of relations with different countries in Asia, for example. They also want to increase influence, much like Iran does in the region, either by mimicking the Iranian model of reaching out to non-state actors or actors on the ground, or by just filling the void by building relationships with states in the region. Um, And actually today, Uh, you can argue that it's no longer just in the region. There was a point where, particularly after the Arab Spring, where the focus was the Middle East, but today it goes far beyond it. Uh, You have uh, different members of the Gulf Arab States involved in various arenas in Africa um, and and pursuing their own interests in a very self-assured manner um, in in both the Middle East and beyond, and actually even in the Europe and US with all the efforts that they're putting in, in lobbying. So to finish off, basically, you can really see that there is a clear mismatch in security perceptions in the region, uh, which I think is part of the reason why we've had these tensions uh, for so long between the Gulf Arab states and Iran. Thanks. Thank
0: you uh, so much, uh, Dr. Esfandiari, for laying out the groundwork, because uh, it's very important to know the perspectives of both sides, because only then we can actually get into meaningful conversation. So, uh, uh, I mean, immediately now we'll go uh, to our next speaker, Dr. Sagar, who will uh, tell us about whether there is uh, any ground or what are those exact grounds on which uh, cooperation can be built uh, between these two powers. Dr. Sagar, the floor is yours.
2: Thank you very much uh, for inviting me to be today with uh, such a wonderful panelist and also a great audience that you have. Uh, and I've been cooperating with your university since many uh, years, but it's glad to be uh, back again uh, on the scene. Well, talking about regional security, it's an extremely important issue for us here in the region. I think Dr. Svandiyari, she lay out the concern of both sides quite well. But at the same time, maybe I would like to add a few things you know, to that one. And how does the perception, uh, you know, being seen from people? From, uh, uh, you know, you know, from our part, at least from the Gulf region here. You know, we believe that, uh, you know, we don't have, uh, Iran still represents the threat, and the threat perception is there because of the act and the behavior of the Iranian government uh, in the region. And it's not only today. She's right. It started at the time of Shah, when the Shah of Iran thought he was the policeman of the Gulf. Second, uh, also, when the revolution came up with the idea of exporting the revolution and, and, and moving from another, you know, to, to a different country, and also encourage sectarianism in the region, that also became a great and a big concern. In my opinion, I think uh, seeing today, Iran are against any presence of international forces. They're not really in agreement, you know, with us in the region, so they would like to have the region free of any forces. They believe they are the largest power and they will have whatever framework agreement with the region, but no international forces. The Gulf country feels that they don't have the enough capacity and that enough capacity is not really good enough to bring or to to have uh, alone themselves to to respond to any threat coming from Iran. At the same time, the nuclear issue, of course, became uh, on the table, but maybe we have two different here views between us and the West. Uh, The West believe nuclear issue is the most important issue. We believe nuclear issue is an international issue and it's an international responsibility and they need to deal with that and they have to deal with that. But still the set of the agenda that is a big concern for us is the maritime security, is the security of the energy platform, is the interventionist policy, is the expansionist policy of Iran, is support of terrorism, support of militia, um, all those issues are equally important because this is much more regional dimension you know, for our security of concern while the international community look at only the issue of missiles and the nuclear uh, because also Israel has an input here. Israel believes there should be zero enrichment uh, here while the region believes whatever applicable to Iran could be applicable to us and this is why we call for a free zone of WMD and that's not really accepted by Iran because Iran is still insisting that you know, uh, Israel first, you know, and you know, free zone of WMD, which is a larger Middle East, and Israeli do not recognize the NPT, neither the Additional Protocol. While the other Gulf countries and Iran, they do recognize the Additional Protocol. I mean, the NPT and the some of them, the Additional Protocol. So where are we today with that one? I think we have four initiatives. You know, that came out. One was Mesa, by the U.S., but again. Iran believes it's uh, tailor-made to incorporate Israel, and it's against them. So this is why it's not acceptable by Iran. Second, we have the uh, uh, Russian proposal, and the American will never accept the Russian proposal in the region here, because still they believe you know they want to be on the region, and at the same time, uh, you know the Russian proposal really has no real detail on, on that. Third is the you know, Hormuz Initiative by President Rouhani, where he talked about non interventionist and non-aggression, which is fine for the region, but at the same time, the region, they wanted to backward, not really only from today, which mean you have supported the Hezbollah, as Dr. Sfandiari called it uh, for, from the Iranian government perspective, as a, a success story, or the Houthi, or even the militia has been. Iran have chosen to deal with a violent non-state actor and militia in the region rather than dealing with government in terms of any implementation or any, any policies issues. And of course, the fourth was the European and the European primarily focusing in some of the maritime because of the importance for them. But I think in the end of the day, what we need to have, it's a blended uh, sort of a structure between all the different uh, you know, uh, proposal to reach to uh, uh, you know a sort of understanding and then what the key issue will be is the who will be the guarantor and how that sort of guarantor can play a role. Is it only the US and the, the B5 plus 1, or is it a B5 plus 1 plus United Nations and the EU? Uh, what sort of you know guarantor, how that can act, who will observe, what will happen? I think it still is a big ambiguity at this stage. Even if you look at the late discussion between Saudi Arabia and Iran that took place in Iraq, that's primarily focused uh, on Yemen and on reestablishing the uh, diplomatic relation that Iran is keen for, that because of the Hajj and Amra questions. So, with, but still, there are many, many points I think not to be really addressed, and they are far from reaching uh, anything. Going through the uh, current situation today in Vienna talk, I think the Gulf country, you know, they have not been consulted in the first JCPOA 2015. and. When they were consulted, and we've had the uh, uh, the uh, the team from the you know Britain, Germany, and France visiting the region here, talking to different Gulf countries to address or to you know uh, listen to their concern. Their concern was not taking an account on the current negotiation on the JCPOA, but at the same time, still the Gulf countries remains hopeful that with the alliances they have. This will address really a lot of their concern, which they have stated it very clearly uh, to the different envoys and specialized committee on that, whether from the EU or the US, and so. But uh, where are we today on the on the Vienna? I think there is uh, an Iranian demand of compensation of losses, of release of sanction uh, that was imposed on JCPOA, and also uh, uh, removing sanction from the Murshid, from. Uh, Khamenei and, and some of the, you know, political leaders around him, while the negotiator from the other side are looking to see that the 60% enriched uranium should be removed, even the 20%, and then to uh, dismantle the the equipment that uh, the center vision, the new center fusion, they have um, uh, developed, uh, you know, all this high enriched uranium, either to remove it outside the country or to do whatever things that can be done there. So, With all of that, you know, it really comes the point uh, uh, how far JCPOA will move. Are we going to have a real agreement now or that's going to talk into some of the friends in Vienna? They say it could be a week, it could be a month, it could be a year. Still, we don't know how things are going there and what sort of final stage. But in principle, the Gulf countries have said, fine, you know, U.S. can go back to JCPOA. This is their decision. We cannot change it. But at the same time, what we need to, you know, everybody to take in account our concern of the security agenda that we have here in the region. Uh, you know, addressing also the, the, uh, the uh, how do we move forward from here? I think any security architecture taking account all the concern of all the parties. And I think security architecture here must include the six DCC country, Iraq, Iran, and Yemen. And I think the Gulf countries and Saudi Arabia in particular are in support of, you know, such things, you know, they would like to see such things, uh, you, you know, to be to be uh, uh, in place, but at the same time, with the proper guarantee that can really assure and ensure the continuation of, of such things, you know, as still uh, Iran has a lot of interest in the region They're, it's a big country, it's uh, uh, and also uh, Uh, living in peace and focusing in development will benefit the Iranian people much more than the current suffering situation, whether it's in economic or in the currency issue or in the inflation rate that's taking place or even some of the political and security disturbance that they are living with. What we are not willing, of course, to accept is the issues that I've mentioned, the interventionist policy using sectarianism as a dimension that what happened in Iraq you know, we never had a border with Iran. You know, the, we have a border with Iraq on Kuwait and, and and Iraq. But at the same time, now having the Iranian-supported uh, uh, militia in Iraq acting on their behalf, so the proxy, it makes it very difficult. Seeing also the situation in Syria and how they are supporting Uh, That one, it looks also, you know, quite difficult to see there. Hezbollah, which really disturbed the creation of the government. Houthi, after receiving a 300 missiles, ballistic missile coming to Saudi Arabia with the drone and the boat, that was not really uh, made by the the Yemeni. It was supplied technically. This is why also in the missiles, we differentiate, you know, between uh, the sovereignty right of Iran of developing their own missile and preserving it or and the, and the different issue, which is manufacturing and exporting it to a violent non state actor like Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, Houthi, and all these you know, people that really are using it against civilian and against uh, you know, country uh, in the region here. So without you know, changing the act and the behavior in Iran, uh, it's very difficult to have a normalized relation despite of some of the Gulf countries that they do have you know, similarly less tension and less escalated level of tension. But I think in terms of security perception, it remains very high uh, in both uh, sides. Um, it's true Iran do not perceive the Gulf country as a threat uh, unless the US is there with them. And at the same time, uh, the GCC countries still perceive Iran as, as a sort of uh, real threat because it's practical. It's there. It's on the field. We see it, uh, you know, uh, by the way, how they act and they behave. On the Abraham core, by the way, I'll just mention a few words. Saudi Arabia's position was uh, Bahrain and UAE is a suffering state out of the 57 country member in the organization of Islamic countries, I think there's 28 countries that they have relation with diplomatic relation with Israel. So that's a sovereign issue we're not going to interfere. But maybe those countries, they did look at it from uh, this point that normalization will bring peace. Uh, the way Saudi Arabia see it, maybe, you no, know, we need peace first and then we move to normalization. And that's the big difference uh, at this stage between both sides. However, I think uh, Saudi since whatever happened in Hamas, they've closed the airspace the Israeli uh, flight and so uh, and And at the same time, uh, they remain in support of the Palestinian uh, you know, Authority. Uh, Saudi Arabia have contributed more than $6 billion to the you know, Palestinian Authority over the period of time and also have continuously to endorse all their political issues. And they've held an Arab League and OIC meeting and the support a lot of the uh, uh, statement in the uh, the UN and the Security Council, but the Ibrahim Accord it doesn't have really a military ties in it as far as the framework. Maybe unilaterally, you know, as Dr. Sfandiari mentioned, UAE and, and Israel they're talking, but I think it's still far premature, and I don't think the tradition of Israeli have even fought on behalf of other country or to a certain territory. No, that did not happen. Second. The Israeli, uh, 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 you know, uh, are concerned about the security. but They wanted to, you know, to have a, a closer relation because maybe this will help them in terms of the reconnaissance. But also they do have their own submarine in the Arabian Sea. They do have their own reconnaissance system, which they can use. So for the Israelis still, Iran remains as a big threat. They wanted to see a zero enrichment in Iran. They do not wish to see any... Uh, enrichment capability there or so. So uh, looking at all this uh, picture, the international players are very important i.e uh, United States primarily, but then China and Russia can be a supporter or can they can be an obstacle. but they do like to uh, take in account Iran interest because also for the. US establishing a new alliances consists of Australia, Japan, South Korea and India. The only way for, for, for China to balance that is to, is to look at Iran and Pakistan. This is the two main country uh, you know, to offset that and to balance the, the, uh, that sort of alliances. So uh, we do not wish to see a new Cold War era in the region. We do not wish to see a fight between the US and the Russian or the Chinese, or even you know major dispute, we would like to still to see uh, and economic uh, prosperity and uh, much more development on 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 that. This is in general uh, what I have to say, and I'll be happy to take question unless if there is something very precise you want me to comment on it. I'll be happy to.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Sagar. I think you have a very uh, nicely laid out the logistics of the security arrangement that we may uh, you know now proceed uh, with Abdullah, Dr. Abdullah Babu, to you know work on. Uh, and uh, now I actually go to uh, Dr. Babuth and uh, we would like to have his views on uh, what are his stakes especially under the paradigm of the four different security architecture that you have mentioned and the role of the great Powers, especially the quad that you have mentioned where uh, these four countries are there. So uh, I would like to invite Dr. babud uh, on the floor to uh, have his view on the broader security arrangement of the Gulf region. And Dr. Babu. Um,
3: thank you very much, uh, Dr. Asaf Shija and uh, for this kind invitation. Uh, it's a, a great uh, pleasure and honor to be with friends and colleagues, uh, very distinguished friends and colleagues, on this uh, on this panel. And always a great honor to be with you at uh, Mei with uh, friends and colleagues there. Um, really miss you and greetings from Tokyo uh, to all of you. Um, You made my uh, role uh, rather uh, difficult and easy. Uh, Difficult, I have to come up with something new and easy to uh, just recycle some of the uh, ideas that has been put uh, uh, through. So let me start by um, uh, just saying that, um, you know, I I agree with the, the colleagues of what they have said, and I think it shows that, there are uh, different perceptions when we talk about security. And when we talk about security in the Gulf or in the region, uh, you know, the question is, uh, security of whom? Who are we talking about here? Uh, When uh, when it is, you know, seen from the prism of the United States or the West, is security uh, of the Western uh, military power there and security of the oil uh, supply uh, when it's seen from Iran it's obviously security of the regime and the state of course as uh, uh, Dina had uh, uh, mentioned um, and of course you know in this respect they have issues with uh, uh, western powers presence in in the region when it's seen from the gulf states is a Completely uh, different view altogether. It's Iran, it's Iraq, um, it's you know uh, all the different things. Um, you know sectarianism, all of that that has been uh, mentioned by uh, the colleagues. So security, of whom is is uh, is is always important. Is it also security of the regimes uh, as well? And how does you know regimes look uh, uh, at security? And sometimes. Uh, regime security and state security are two conflated uh, concepts, and and then we have you know I think we also need to kind of consider while we are talking about security what kind of security uh, or, or security challenges are we facing? Is it hard security? Is it soft security? And again, there is a link between them uh, as well. There seems to be a lot of focus on on hard security when soft security. Is actually, um, you know, quite challenging, and uh, we are seeing, you know, whether it is COVID-19 or the economic crisis or sectarianism and ideologies that are uh, um, spreading in the region can also lead to uh, some of it to, you know, conflicts uh, in the region. Uh, but in the midst of this balancing game that uh, the region uh, is uh, uh, is engaged in. in uh those kind of securities are are forgotten you know not even to forget climate change and the impact of that and water security food security all of those things have to be taken into consideration and i'll bring that those back uh uh, later on if you like but um i think it is important to uh consider uh those kind of securities when we are talking about obviously um as we have heard uh, from my uh, friends and colleagues, uh, that you know, um, uh, Iran sees security differently from uh, the Gulf states. But I will also add, um, there isn't a consensus within the Gulf states uh, in terms of how they do uh, see Iran uh, 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 as a security a challenge. Uh, some of some of them seeing as, uh, some of them see it as a security threat, some of them see it as a security challenge, and some also differ in terms of how uh, to deal with this. Um, you know, how do you confront that? Is it through confrontation or uh, or, or through dialogue and um, uh, diplomacy? So those are um, issues that we also need to, to look at when we're looking at um, you know security in the region. Obviously, there is no consensus as we've just heard, but also there is no consensus within uh, the Gulf states because the definition of security is different. Uh, the, um, the security perception or uh, threat perception is also different from uh, the, the Gulf state. So with that kind of introduction, let me just add to, uh, another dimension to this, and that is, uh, despite all the challenges that the f- region is facing, um, not only uh, you know because of um, and I agree, it's not only because of the um, uh, you know the Islamic Republic, but even before um, the region has not been able to develop any kind of a security architecture that is comprehensive, that is inclusive that uh, uh, can lead to at least some kind of a dialogue taking place, and diplomacy, and um, some confidence-building measures that can be uh, uh, done through this uh, mechanism. Uh, The GCC uh, deliberately excluded um, uh, Iran, Iraq, and and Yemen. um, uh, And it was an exclusive club for the monarchies i can uh, well understand that for you know uh, maybe good reasons why they did that however it did not develop uh, to uh, um, for to uh, find another alternative or another uh, um, you know mechanism even linked to the gcc not necessarily uh, within the core gcc but you know it's like the asian uh, regional forum for example with asean where other countries are being invited to talk about you know, common uh, security and also to talk about common uh, cooperation uh, as well. So we actually lack that. Uh, so there is, uh, you know, uh, there is exclusivity in the region, and this is what we are uh, seeing, which creates misperception, which creates all these uh, ideas that we are, um, you know, problems that we are talking about. And obviously the whole idea of regional hegemon hasn't died away. And this is something that is, you know, coming back to haunt us. Um, you know, uh, obviously this rivalry between Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Iran is each one of them wants to be the regional hegemon. And that is of course dangerous and, uh, and, and no one is going to accept that. Um, uh, uh, in the region, and we've seen how much costly uh, it has been to the region, and obviously it's mutated to um, beyond the region nowadays, and we can see that Iran, you know, in in its aspiration to be a hegemonic power in the region, not only uh, in in the Gulf, but beyond, we see that it's, you know, challenging Israel, and we want to, to do this defensive, Um, uh, um, defensive uh, posture against Israel by, you know, arming Hezbollah uh, 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 and all of that. And now, because of the Abraham Accord, we are seeing that Israel is slowly moving into the region, uh, into the Gulf waters. And that also is going to complicate uh, the the picture. And if the rivalry between these two uh, major um, uh, regional countries that is Iran and Saudi Arabia is not enough, we are now seeing even middle countries in the region or middle powers that are emerging and they are themselves seeing perhaps that there is a role for them. Obviously, um, this, uh, this is happening at the time when there is uh, a sense of abandonment because you know of the policies of the United States um, uh, or at least this perception that there is going to be and abandonment and they see there's a lot of hedging going on uh, at the moment with other uh, international powers, whether it is the Europeans, but also we're seeing it with the Russians and the Chinese um, and even with the Indians. And um, again, just internationalizing all these uh, problems without facing it head on uh, to try and uh, and sort it out. So I think if you, Uh, you know, like me to end here is I would say what the region really needs is a a little bit of uh, common sense. And that common sense is no one can really be the real hegemon in the region. Countries bandwagon, uh, countries uh, get uh, help and hedge uh, against each other. And the only way that this can be done is by having some kind of a, a mechanism where these ideas are um, actually um, discussed in a diplomatic manner through some kind of a forum or a a security architecture, however you want to call it. I don't think we are ready yet to have um, uh, some kind of a a NATO or or some kind of a a full-fledged security architecture, but at least start with a dialogue, a dialogue that is inclusive, uh, of everyone, that is, maybe start building from, you know, uh, tackling the immediate threats, as it were, um, um, trying to dissipate this uh, misperception because each side look at uh, at other as a threat, and, and then move on from there to build uh, cooperation, uh, economic cooperation, tackle all these um, uh, soft security challenges that the region is facing and will face it even longer because of you know, not only with COVID-19, the fall in the oil price, but there are other uh, issues. There is unemployment in the region. Their income is dwindling for individuals. Um, As I said, food security, water security, uh, cybersecurity, all of those challenges that are the the region facing, uh, they could tackle it in a very, in a collective way that can ensure peace and stability and cooperation in the region. This is, the region is not exceptional. There are other regions in the world that have their own problems and they have uh, ideology, ideological competition and they have uh, aspirational countries that want to dominate and want to be uh, hegemonic uh, in one way or the other. But they did find ways of, uh, of doing it. Not perfect, but at least there is a, a semblance of some kind of a dialogue. What we lack is a dialogue. What we lack is diplomacy. What we lack is common sense. Seemingly, now, with the changes in the uh, US administration, there is a move towards that. We're seeing that there is a de-escalation, perhaps, in in Yemen, maybe leading to uh, ending of the war there. We're seeing that there is you know, maybe some kind of resolution to the Syrian crisis. We've seen that there is um, um, some development taking place uh, with Iraq, and the dialogue that is already taking place uh, my uh, dear friend like mentioned has mentioned uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia. That's a really good start. Even even if it's limited, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a good start. We've seen, we heard that recently Prince Mohammed bin Salman changed completely his tone from, um, you know, not talking to Iran and taking the war to Iran to actually want to have a dialogue. That is really important. That is something that, you know, the region should build on and 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 move in that because without a dialogue without um dissipating these kind of uh, security threat perceptions from both sides we are going to continue on uh, on the same way now if you want me to end there are three countries that really matters in the region the arab countries have um, really because of their internal conflicts have made themselves uh, uh, weak and they have become become subjects to the others to function. And the the three countries that really matters now is Iran, uh, uh, Turkey, and Israel. And um, you know what what is needed is that there is some kind of uh, uh, recognition that the Arab countries' internal struggle uh, and internal competition has to end. and and between themselves and also between their neighbors and have something that that is inclusive of all the parties in in the region, extending from Iran onwards, even including Israel with, of course, while um, uh, ensuring that there is, uh, the Palestinian rights are uh, recognized, but also including Turkey uh, and so on, because there are actors in the region and they cannot be ignored. Um, You know, the region is not just made of Arabs, there are others in the region, and we should be able to uh, include them and talk to them and cooperate with them in a meaningful manner that brings peace stability and prosperity to all. Uh, I end here, uh, uh, if you like, Uh, Asif, thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Babu. Actually, uh, your uh, approach, uh, as if it so, I mean, so easy, common uh, sense is involved, you know, this is the way you portray. I mean, this is what generates a lot of hope that uh, if it is common sense, which is required and uh, which is very uncommon, uh, then uh, of course we can achieve it. And you know, uh, uh, Dr. Babu, that we had discussed this theme a lot earlier when we were colleagues. So uh, I'm happy uh, that we have all the three uh, you know, sectors, uh, they have been covered right now. And, uh, and now, of course, I know audiences have a lot of questions. I myself have a lot of questions, constructive ones, and uh, we can discuss them. Uh, but uh, since uh, Dr. Svandiyari has to leave us in about 10 minutes, I would request the audiences to pose questions which may be specifically meant for her, and uh, maybe she can answer them uh, before she actually uh, departs. So uh, I would request the audiences to raise their hand or to send me their uh, questions. I have, uh, okay, from the floor, uh, uh, Mr. Rajan. Uh, 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 Mr. Rajan, could you please uh, unmute yourself and ask your question? Uh, Uh, Rajan, we can't hear you. If you have unmuted yourself, I can see your hand. Yes. Uh, Can you hear me now? Uh, Yes, uh, we can hear you loud and clear.
4: Please go ahead. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. They are all useful. But I would like to bring in China. China must be watching the developments with some degree of interest, if not concern, especially if they perceive U.S. Intra stamina and willpower is weakening. What kind of a role do you think they will play in the Middle East equation? Thank you. I, it can be answered by anyone, maybe Dr. Dina
0: Swandi. Uh, Thank okay. you. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Sandhya, if you could uh, like to attempt this uh, answer,
1: uh, sure, happy to. Um, I think China is a, 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 a bit of an interesting one to watch at the moment in the Middle East. Um, as you say, the perception is that the U.S. is leaving, so everybody's kind of hedging their bets and looking east. The Iranians have been doing it for a while longer, but they haven't really nurtured the relationship with the Chinese the way that the Gulf Arab states have. They've put a lot of time and effort into building uh, a relationship of equals uh, in some respects and really ensuring that there is uh, there's Chinese interest Um, In in their countries, the Iranians it's been more transactional there's always been a lot of suspicion between the Iranians and the Chinese. They don't really like each other much but the Iranians know they don't really have a choice as well they kind of have to look towards the Chinese given um, international efforts to isolate them under sanctions, Uh, and so the relationship has been a little bit stickier. Having said that, it's a very pragmatic, very compartmentalized relationship between the Chinese and the Iranians, um, which basically means they work together on issues that they can agree on and they ignore issues that they can't agree on, which is why they've managed to build Um, a a working, long-lasting relationship in the way that Iran perhaps hasn't with many other states. Um, There's been a lot of talk about this recent 25-year agreement between the Iranians and the Chinese. A lot of people are painting it as a big game-changer in the region. Um, I'm a little bit more skeptical. I think it's welcome news for the Iranians, particularly politically, because it allows them to look towards the Americans and the Europeans and say, ha, you're never going to be able to isolate us again, because now we have another superpower that stands with us. But ultimately, the content of the agreement is no better or worse um, than any other deal the Chinese have with other countries in the Middle East. Uh, In fact, China is doing a very good job of making sure that all its relationships are more or less equal, um, and it's really gaining from every relationship in the region. Uh, so, it, it isn't that much of a game-changer, certainly not the way it's been painted up. Uh,
0: thank you so much, Dr. Svendari. I have one more question for you uh, from Amir Hassan, uh, who says, uh, uh, talks actually about the role of the people, that uh, do Iranians favor those policies which are being uh, implemented by Iran? Uh, the majority of the people, do they support those policies of Iranian regime, uh, Iranian rulers? Uh, Do GCC countries believe that nuclear deal stops Iran to follow its nuclear, uh, I mean uh, uh, it's saying that, uh, do GCC countries believe that the nuclear deal will stop Iran from following its nuclear dream, nuclear program? If not, uh, then uh, uh, do they also think of going uh, for this nuclear weapon? Uh, This is the question for you.
1: Thanks. Um, On the first one, I mean, obviously, it's very difficult to tell exactly what Iranian public opinion thinks, uh, because people are absolutely terrified of answering questions um, in a a very honest manner, um, whether it's on the phone or, or through interviews and stuff. But generally, you can get a sense for where people stand. And the way that it works in Iran is that it's a little bit cyclical, and it kind of depends on what policies exactly we're talking about. So I'll give you an example. Iran generally, over the course of the last few years, because of the problems it's had domestically, Iranians have been very anti Iran's involvement in the region. So when there were protests going on over the course of the last few years, the slogans that they were chanting were things like, not Palestine, not Hezbollah, bring the money back home. So the focus was really, we're struggling internally, why are you sending our money abroad? But when there was an immediate threat to Iran and its borders posed by a group like ISIS, popularity, the popularity of the IRGC's policies and interventions in the region went up. People were feeling very nationalistic towards the Revolutionary Guards and what the guards were doing to secure Iran. Um, So suddenly these slogans went away. Nobody was talking about being fed up of Iranian interventions in Syria anymore. The idea really was, get the Revolutionary Guards to take the threat as far away from us as possible. Um, And that's what I mean when I say it's cyclical. Today, the economic situation in Iran is difficult once again. And so the focus is very much internal. Why? Why are we spending so much money abroad when we are struggling to feed ourselves internally? And I think that's how generally it goes. In terms of the uh, second question, um, I think that, ultimately, uh, and of course, again, my co panelists are probably a better place to answer this, but I think on a, ultimately, the Gulf Arab states understand that Iran isn't necessarily pursuing a military nuclear um, program. The idea is to contain the potential that Iran might one day decide to make its program a military one. And I think that for that reason, they support the talks, even though it's difficult for them to to say so. Certainly in my engagement of people in the region, um, everybody says, look, it's a problem like any other. If we get it off the table, it's, it's useful. The problem is that's not the main problem for them. The problem for them is what Iran is doing in the region is Iran's involvement in Iraq, in Yemen, in Lebanon. That's the main crux of the problem. And resolving the nuclear issue will not resolve this, which is why I think over the course of the last few months, you've seen a little bit more pragmatism um, within the Gulf Arab states, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE in particular in pursuing very limited de-escalatory talks with Iran in order to ensure and kind of preempt what Iran might do in the region over the course of the next few months or years uh, once the nuclear issues are dealt with. Now, will the Gulf Arabs themselves go for the bomb? Saudi Arabia has made a lot of statements about um, its potential interest in either buying a bomb from the Pakistanis or pursuing it themselves. Um, I am skeptical uh, at the idea that this is something that is likely to be successful in the immediate term. Uh, Building nuclear programs are difficult. It takes a long time. The Emiratis already have one, but they are the gold standard, they've uh, worked with the United States to develop their program in a completely peaceful manner. So um, I think the risk of nuclear or a nuclear cascade in the region, I think is a limited one, but I do think it's a good idea to start to work towards a zone free of weapons of mass destruction, um, in order to ensure that it's a problem we won't have to deal with down the line.
0: Uh, thank you, Dr. Sandari. Now we have uh, Mr. Flavius Kaba, okay. Flavius Kaba-Maria. Uh,
2: please, yeah. uh, go ahead. Yeah. Congratulations for this event. And I would like to be very straight to the point. Um, you mentioned also we discussed about this uh, current negotiation in, uh, on a nuclear deal in Vienna. Uh, my question is, how do you see the role of Iran after this negotiation, if it's happened uh, in the region? the role of Iran in the region, will shape their um, uh, behavior? Um, how we'll see. Thank you very much.
0: OK, thank you. Dr. Dina, please go ahead. Answer.
1: Sure, happy to take it. Um, uh, as I mentioned in my talk, I think that uh, unfortunately, much like we saw after 2015, you're likely to see a little bit of a backlash if the talks do lead to a deal. Um, and that's because Iran will have to prove that even though it's made concessions in one area, um, it, it, you know, it won't let the world powers dictate what it can and can't do. And so it's, it's inevitably going to lash out on the rest of the region. But part of that is also because it's, the nuclear issue isn't tied to regional issues. The discussions are only on the nuclear program. They're supposed to resolve one area only, not uh, what Iran is doing in the region, which is the purview of the Gulf Arab states and Iran and for them to sort out in a separate track. Um, and at various times, there have been discussions about expanding the nuclear talks to include regional issues, but ultimately the negotiators decided this wasn't the right format. And also, if we wanted to get an agreement on the nuclear front, if you brought in new, uh, the regional issues, then you would never, uh, certainly not in the, in, the, in the speed and time frame that they wanted to reach an agreement. So um, I think you're going to have a period where Iran might continue some of its nefarious activities if there is a resolution of the talks. But I do think that if there is a resolution of the talks, there will be greater interest for Iran to ultimately start to curb what it's doing, to approach talks with the other countries in the region in a more open-minded and wholehearted manner in a way that they probably wouldn't do If there wasn't a resolution of the nuclear issue at least not in the same manner they might engage in a very limited capacity um, much like they're doing now uh, to resolve specific tactical problem areas but i don't think that they would be as open to a more general discussion with the region on building regional security so i do think you have to do the nuclear issue first you have to get rid of it and then you'll be able to tackle these other areas Okay, Dr. Isfandyari, could you take just one last question
0: before you take your leave? Uh, is it all right? Uh, because I see one raised hand. Maybe the last question for you, and then we will move on to other esteemed guests. Uh, Suzanne Kurdli, uh, uh, please go ahead and ask your question to Dr. Dina. Um, uh,
1: thank you very much to all the panelists for your very useful insights. Uh, yes, my question is indeed to uh, Dr. Isfandyari. And uh, my question is about a topic that I think a lot of researchers on the region are keeping an eye on, which is the upcoming Iranian uh, presidential elections and the very high likelihood that conservatives will take control of the executive branch. And I wanted to know your insights on how that would uh, impact security in the region in terms of the Gulf region, but also other areas such as Syria, Iraq, Lebanon. Thank you. And that's it. Thank you.
0: Please, uh, Dr. Fendier. Thanks. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks for your question. Um, yes, uh, you're absolutely right. It is a very limited pool of candidates, and none of them are real reformists. So there does seem to be a general shift towards the conservatives uh, in Iran. There are different degrees of conservatism, um, uh, and some of the candidates are more, others less. But ultimately, the ideals are more conservative ideals within those that are that are in the running at the moment. Um, It's an interesting time in Iranian domestic politics. I'm not sure that will have that much impact on Iran's foreign policy. The main reason is because Iranian foreign policy right now is held, particularly regional policy, not beyond, but certainly regional policy is held Uh, by the uh, foreign branch of the Revolutionary Guards, and they're not going to change. It's the same guys looking and acting on these issues with their ideas, working closely with the Supreme Leader. Um, So in that respect, I'm not sure things will change that much. Where you are likely to see a little bit of a change is outside of the region, in engagement with the P5 plus one, with the Europeans, with countries in Asia, things like that. And even there, there's been a very interesting trend. While the Conservatives over the course of the last few years have been calling out the Rouhani administration for failing to safeguard Iranian interests in negotiations with the West, for example, they have also been watching what the Rouhani administration has done. And they've also seen that as a result of the nuclear deal, the Islamic Republic did gain some political legitimacy internationally. That legitimacy even went up when the President Trump walked away from the deal, because for the first time in the Islamic Republic's history, Iran wasn't the bad guy; the U.S. was, and for that, um, they've seen that that there is a there is a welcome uh, aura of of yeah legitimacy weight. Uh, influence that comes with acting as a a decent world power in in some respects. And so I think that despite the fact that conservatives are less likely to engage with the Americans and the Europeans generally, I think today, these discussions on the JCPOA, perhaps beyond them, will continue because they will want to maintain this aura of legitimacy that has come with engagement over the course of the last few years. and, And this idea that Iran no longer is the bad guy. Um, I think that to them is quite important. And also my sincere apologies for having to leave. This is a delightful discussion. I would have been happy to stay really, so really sorry. Uh,
0: uh, Thank you so much, Dina, on behalf of all the audience and the organizers. I would just request you to uh, stay and all the other panelists to please uh, switch on your camera so that we can have a group photograph, which we normally have at the end. So uh, uh, Sharon, our uh, event team lead, uh, please go ahead with the snap. And Dr. Sagar, could you please switch on your camera so that we can have this group photo? We are done. Okay, uh, thank you so much. So, uh, Thank you. Uh, Dr. Sandyari, thank you so much. I would uh, just inform the audience it was a very, very uh, emergency like situation, but still she agreed to take those questions. So we're really thankful to you. Uh, Thank you and
1: apologies again. Have a good day.
0: Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And uh, now moving ahead, uh, we have another question for obviously the other two speakers. Uh, uh, Mr. Rajan, uh, could you go ahead and ask your question? Uh, Uh, Mr. Rajan, could you please unmute yourself uh, if you wish to ask you a question? Okay. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can
4: hear you. Yes, yes. sorry about that. No uh, problem. I, I meant to ask this earlier. The Russians they are quite close to the region and they have much more uh, interests and uh, concerns, uh, maritime energy and uh, territorial borders. And they they must uh, they must be uh, have some concern, degree of concern for them. So what, how would how would they assess this, and what are their likely moves in the future? Thank you.
0: Okay, uh, so uh, uh, I think. Uh, Doctor Sagar, would you like to attempt this question? And maybe after that, uh, Doctor Babu can also
2: uh, answer. That's fine. That's fine. I think uh, you know. Yes, Russia. They do have a strong relation with Iran, and also they used to have traditionally with Iraq. But also, since six years, we have seen the Russian in Syria, and the only thing they did is they, they try to keep Bashar al-Assad in power, but they have not really end the war. They have not end the conflict there. They're trying to be involved in Libya. They're trying to play a role also in Yemen. But at the same time, as a principle, the region do not wish to see another era of a Cold War. Uh, uh, you know, Saudi and you know, other Gulf countries have met with the Russian and they've tried to express their concern. I think Russia sometimes, is an important safe uh, uh, you know, valve for, for, the, for some of the decision in the Security Council. As we all remember, when it came to the Syrian, uh, all the Security Council resolution related to Syria, most of it was uh, vetoed by, by Russia. And this why it was, it was not implemented. And Russia will try to use it at best because they still would like to keep Iran in their spheres of influence rather than out of that one. But at the same time, Iran uh, is, I mean, uh, uh, Russia is a producer of a raw material like the region. They do have oil and gas and some mineral. We do have the same. They are not really entering into the market like the Chinese. The Chinese, they do have a product that they sell into the market. They buy from the region a raw material, but at the same time, they flood the market with a lot of their products there. So it's slightly different. I think the last visit of the Russian foreign minister to the region here was very much focused on the Russian-Iran relation, and also the way how we see Russia's role could be in the region. Thank you.
0: Uh, uh, Dr. Abdullah, Could you please add on, if you wish. uh,
3: Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Asif, and I agree with uh, Belaziz, but I think what uh, um, we we also have to take into consideration that because of this fluid, uh, fluidity in the um, kind of uh, the regional uh, structure and because of this, uh, perception whether uh, with the United States may abandoning the region and there is a space for other players to come in, we have seen um, not only regional countries filling um, this perceived gap, uh, as it were, but we are seeing also global powers trying to move in. And of course, uh, China is, is one. And I agree with Abdul, Abdul, my friend Abdelaziz that China is, uh, you know, coming with a different uh, uh, proposal and d- different perspective, at least it doesn't have any kind of military uh, or, or very little military, if any, um, involvement at the moment. It's, uh, uh, it's focusing in economy and investment and, uh, and energy interest. Uh, and it's trying to play off uh, and play um, kind of balancing game between all the actors in the region I think uh, Russia is a very interesting actor, and, is, and a country that perhaps we need to be watched. Maybe, um, uh, as uh, uh, Abdelaziz had mentioned, you know, we just uh, think about its involvement in in, in, in Syria uh, and, and and Libya at the moment. But uh, it's also some a country that perhaps needs to get more uh, attention than than what we are uh, giving to, in the sense that um while it uh, uh, it is not the global power that the soviet union wa- was once it is still uh, uh, quite a powerful country and it can stand uh, and and pick uh, uh, its space uh, as it were and has proved to be quite you know powerful in that in that regard whether we, uh, you know, however we look at, you know, whether their involvement in, in, in Syria, they actually stood with, uh, uh, with Bashar al-Assad and made sure that he, um, you know, he, he continues. Uh, and in, in a sense, you know, when beating all other contenders uh, in that. So I think that should not be taken lightly. And obviously their involvement in Libya is another one, although it's indirect through proxies. Um, but um, you know we are seeing that perhaps uh, Syria is uh, Russia is now looking uh, at the development in South Yemen. You know that uh, uh, Syria, uh, Russia has to have this um, rela- long relations with the communist South Yemen. In the past, uh, we're seeing that they are interested in the Horn of Africa. Um, so I, I, and of course their relationship with Iran. I don't think we should, um, you know, count them out. Um, it's not the same power as it was, but it is very selective in where it wants to involve, and so far, um, from their perspective, or from other, you know, their uh, countries that support uh, that they supported, it has shown some success. It actually, um, um, you know, unlike the United States. In Syria, for example, where you know, they draw a red line and they uh, did not uh, honor it, Russia actually stood with, uh, Assad, uh, with uh, Bashar al-Assad and made sure that he, he succeeds. So that is something that we should uh, take counter uh, of and, and don't discount them uh, immediately. They are still a power to be reckoned with and obviously they have interest in, in, in the region. They've always had that kind of interest in the past.
0: Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Babud. And uh, from what we had just spoken uh, about the region and uh, the involvement of four different, I would say the representative of sects uh, Iran, the Persian, uh, the Turks, the Turkey, <laughs> you know, and then of course Israeli and uh, the the rest of Arab. So uh, in that regard, uh, of course, what stands out is Saudi Arabia. And uh, uh, in that particular uh, dynamics, I would like uh, to ask one question to uh, our guest doctor sagar because uh, i i know and through his writings i think the world knows that he has been deeply deeply invested in in saudi arabia's overture uh, towards iran so we would very much like to uh, have an update uh, if i may uh, on that uh, on that thing because i think you are the best person to ask this question uh, how exactly has it proceed, proceeded because a lot of interest has been generated in the uh, in the rapprochement between these two powers because it's not just Saudi Arabia but the representative of a big chunk of our population. So how far have they gone ahead with this rapprochement uh, Dr. Sagar, if you could uh, update us uh, well, on
2: that, I think uh, you know in principle Saudi Arabia. They've had a certain period of time with a good relation with Iran during Rafsanjani and Khatami, but at the same time, in January 2016, when the consulate and the embassy of Saudi Arabia has been burned in January 3rd of January, Saudi Arabia decided at that time to cut its diplomatic relation. However, they kept the Hajj service uh, normally provided, but at the same time, uh, Saudi have felt extremely bad in that one. I was involved in a track two discussion between both sides and until the last uh, November, uh, 2019, uh, where we have discussed almost every single issue related to the relation of both sides. And we came up with a great Excel sheet that really defined each one of the topic, whether 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 it's Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, Gulf countries, maritime security, uh, energy security, terrorism, and so on. And where we have defined each one position in that one, but at the same time, because uh, the uh, continuous Iranian act and behavior, which really the last was the difficult one, for 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 attacking the uh, uh, you know the um, critical oil facility in Saudi Arabia, which really supply uh, you know it's a very big refinery and a very big oil critical facility. Uh, I think you know that was the crucial issue where we felt. Uh, you know, we need to, uh, we don't need to retaliate immediately, but we need to take in account all the other, uh, uh, you know, real threat. At the same time, we have been watching the U.S. behavior uh, on the attack on the vessels by the Houthi so-called, which is an Iranian proxy, uh, whether it's the tanker or the commercial ship, and also then the attack on the uh, critical facility. And the drone, the U.S. drone, the U.S. at that time decided not to uh, retaliate uh, or not to respond to that attack. I don't think we have progressed much in terms of reality on the ground whereby I can't see the Iranian. They want the Saudi today to accept reestablishing the diplomatic relation, yes, as Abdullah correctly said. The uh, in last uh, TV interview of the Crown Prince, he said, "We wish the Iranian people the best. We wish to have a peace in the region and live with Iran. I think, as I said before, Saudi are in support of peace stability, We never used our weapon for against any aggression, the war in Yemen is a war of necessity because of the regional involvement of Iran and Yemen that really represent a major threat to Saudi Arabia. However, I think it all depends what will happen in Iran, who will come into power, how they're going to proceed with that one, and how they're going to interpret, as you have correctly asked Dr. Sfandiari, how the Iranian behavior will change after uh, resigning or getting the JCPOA in place, removing the sanction, and providing the fund. What happened in 2015 after the signature and the release of the big amount A lot of the fund was not really used for domestic development in Iran, but a lot of it it was used to enhance the military capability of the Iranian and to support their proxy and militia in the region, as we can see today. Um, If there is no change in the Iranian behavior, no matter what agreement they sign with JCPOA, if there is no uh, political will and a change of attitude and really desire for security and stability in the region and not playing a role of hegemony, I think we will still see the tension continues because the four pillars on the Iran-Gulf relation remains uh, political, different political system, different uh, uh, ideology, belief, and energy issue and a regional structure, regional security structure. And those four pillars sometime. Uh, they do play an, a significant role of how both sides act there. Thank you. Uh,
0: thank you so much, Dr. Sagar. And now I have a very difficult question for Dr. Babud. Uh, because, uh, for the audience, he hails from Oman. And this question is, will we see Oman continue its policy of strategic hedging in the short to medium term? And how can we differentiate the hedging of Oman with the Kuwait? Uh, With that of Kuwait. This question is uh, for Dr. Babut from uh, Nithin. So, (laughs) if you could answer, Dr. Babut.
3: Thank you for uh, directing this uh, 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 difficult uh, question. I I think um, one has to remember that uh, something that we always have to remember, and that geography is destiny. And uh, Oman is a country that is uh, uh, kind of in between, uh, lies between um, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And they are both regional uh, countries, powerful countries, and regional partners. And from Oman's perspective, um, obviously, they respect this uh, geography and, and they respect the relationship with both. And obviously, they want to see that, uh, they understand that, you know, uh, conflict does arise. It's a nature of, um, you know, contemporary politics or even historical uh, uh, politics. Antagonism also happens. But they they always believe that this could only happen, uh, this could only be resolved through conflict and uh, through uh, dialogue and and negotiations and and diplomacy. Um, And... To a certain extent, you know that has proved to be uh, to be right because we've seen all these conflicts that have not really led to uh, uh, anything, and I'll come back to that point in a minute. But just to mention about Kuwait again, geography is destiny because Kuwait's challenges are even much more complicated than Oman because Kuwait is um, again has Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. And it is sandwiched between these three countries. Uh, And obviously, it wants to find this peace, and this playing this um, hedging policy that Oman also does and balancing game. Um, uh, So these small countries in the region, their interest is to see that everybody kind of works in peace and these larger regional countries actually having dialogue and, and and resolving their conflict through uh, and, and negotiations. Um, that is not to say that they also share some of you know uh, the fear about Iran and Iran uh, policies uh, in the region. It's just that they perhaps differ in the sense that they they, they wanted to um, resolve this through a negotiation and. Uh, and dialogue. And I just, if you like, allow me just one more minute, I will echo what uh, my friend Abdul aziza said uh, about um, you know, him attending uh, those uh, uh, meetings between Iran, uh, Iranians, and, uh, and, and also people from the Gulf. I happen to have uh, to attend some of those. Uh, with, uh, uh, with abdulaziz and others. And in fact, if you want to go back, we, this is something that's been going on since the 1980s. Um, if not even before, but at least from what I remember, since the 1980s, we've been having meetings across the globe and within the, uh, uh, and within the region. And the Gulf Research uh, Center that Abdulaziz has established and is heading uh, has, has made a lot of these uh, events uh, uh, as well, you know, bringing Iranians as well as Iraqis and other people from the Gulf to have, uh, to have dialogue, as well as, of course, other research institutes and so on. But we seem to be just talking across each other um, and, and not to uh, uh, each other. And also we are just meeting as uh, purely academics and researchers, and you know, with uh, with our opinions that perhaps is not shared with the um, uh, w- with uh, people in the official uh, positions. And I think these track two uh, negotiations are obviously very useful. But what is what is needed is to move forward to track one point five. You know, getting some practitioners involved, or maybe even track one. Uh, uh, later on, and this is what is missing. Uh, we we live in, in 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 a region that public opinion doesn't really matter much. Uh, we we live in a region where uh, decision making is made at the top, and made by officials. And this is where uh, we need to get to those officials and to make sure they really understand what is happening. It's fantastic. <coughs> We talk to each other, uh, but um, you know, in terms of academics and, and researchers, etc. But unless we can get to the decision makers, it makes it very difficult to um, get our ideas. All of these things that we are talking about have been talking, been talked about uh, since the 1980s, and there has been warnings about, you know, that this is not going, this conflict is not going to lead us anywhere. And the best way is to find you know, solutions and dialogue and, uh, and, and, and use diplomacy, but nothing has happened because of uh, leadership perception. And that's what we really need to tackle uh, in, in a region where leadership perception is much more important than public opinion in this regard. I hope that helps. Thank you.
0: Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Babud. As a good friend, you you have already answered one question that I didn't ask you, and that question was, you have already answered, because I always used to think that, uh, because for some time I have uh, been involved with some conferences related to India and ASEAN, and always we used to have these conferences titled Peace, Progress, Stability, Peace, Progress, Security. But working on Middle East, I never saw this kind of, you know, even titles coming up. It would always be at the crossroads, at the crossroads, at the crossroads, you know. So uh, I think uh, you have just answered the the, the question that why isn't it so because uh, the people's perceptions do not matter. So at track 2 or maybe track 1.5, we are not even concerned about this. Uh, but, you know, the Quranic victim is that, you know, since the start of uh, the humankind, this Habil and Qabil, they were the first ones to have the war among themselves, the fratricide. Since the beginning of human being, uh, this conflict is there. Uh, but uh, even the Quranic uh, verses tell us that the only solution to these problems is to uh, to have talks, you know. Uh, so, if uh, if you uh, allow
3: me, uh, Asif, uh, in, in a yeah, last please. meeting organized by uh, International Crisis Group, where Abdelaziz and myself were actually present, Abdelaziz wrote, a ve- after that meeting, wrote a very, very interesting article, I think in New York Times, Abdelaziz, with
2: uh, same yes. <coughs> musawian but we wrote another one at the Independent, also where we laid down all the key conditions that you know, can de-escalate and can bring the relation into a better terms.
0: Right, right, right. And uh, I think uh, that's, again, uh, taking cue from uh, South uh, uh, East Asia or Asia Pacific or what now people very uh, uh, fondly say Indo-Pacific, we always talk about these security architectures. Uh, My intention was that unless we talk about it, unless we talk about the goal, uh, uh, we cannot reach there, you know. So I think... Uh, Personally, I'm really delighted that uh, we have uh, such great people, you know, talking about these things, exploring about these things, and then uh, we may have maybe some time in future when uh, we, again, actually. Related to that, I have one more question for both of you, uh, Dr. Sagar and Dr. Babu, because both of you have been heading think tanks, you know, as directors. So... uh, uh, what exactly comes to your mind apart from this particular pessimism that okay people are not interested that in terms of <coughs> organizing these kind of uh, conferences where we directly head-on deal with the security <coughs> events, even if we uh, do not mention uh, the word sec- the term security architecture uh, what are your first impressions uh, about organizing these kind of events where we can create some platforms uh, where all the st- uh, stakeholders can come and they can uh, discuss their problem Because uh, if I say Manama dialogue, we don't see Iranians' presence there, you know, the way we have Shangri-La dialogue. So uh, a platform where Israelis can also be there, Saudis can also be uh, there, Turkish can also be there, Iranians can also be there, uh, at least for the sake of talking, because uh, that is the first way of, uh, you know, breaking the ice. I would like to have your respective, uh, you know, reactions to this. Thank you. <laughs>
2: You know, Manama Dialogue, it started from GRC in Dubai, from the Gulf Research Center, Dubai, when John Chipman came and we talked about it and, you know, we've discussed the idea, then he went to Bahrain, Bahrain offered him very generously, uh, you know, hosting it and so on, then it started there. In the beginning, we used to have Iranian participating, but then later on, it became difficult in you know, a situation after the Gulf country had you know, relation uh, to Iran. I think well, what you need, you need to have uh, a neutral platform. You need to have the willingness of the party to come, the proper agenda, the right selection of people to participate because you don't want people to behave stupidly or wrongly, you know, with the other, you want them, you know, understanding your position does not mean I agree with it, but I don't have to insult or I don't have to use a bad manner in, in communicating presenting the cases in a in a proper way and in, in a detailed where the other can understand and honest brokerage is very important uh, you know that's that's a very important you know steps and level to do abdullah
3: abdullah please uh, uh, if you want me to add something i totally agree with uh, my friend abdullah aziz and i also want to add something else there are currently um, a number of initiatives that are uh, being done by, uh, mainly by European countries and mainly by Scandinavian uh, uh, countries that are funding some kind of regional dialogues that are going place, uh, Sweden, Norway, uh, uh, etc. Germany as well is involved in this. And, um, and some meetings are taking place, but they still very much at a, um, a track to maybe trying to move to track 1.5. But however, there's still this, this uh, um, uh, vision or this view that European countries have an interest in the region. And since you asked this question, Asse, maybe it's time for Asian countries, given the fact that you know um, uh, there is economic and energy uh, relations are building up very strongly between Asia and the Gulf uh, region. And there is, of course, um, a convergence of interest here. Is maybe uh, if there were Asian countries that actually help to hold these kind of dialogues, uh, that that will be probably helpful uh, as well, because they don't have this baggage of you know colonial uh, history and 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 of course uh, you know intention and uh, there is a lot of conspiracy theory in the Middle East as well and uh, therefore perhaps uh, with Asian countries you won't, uh, you won't find that. Uh, countries like you know, Singapore uh, can actually be very, very uh, important in, in doing uh, something like this because it's a friend of all in, uh, in the country and in the region and uh, you know it's not considered as a country that has uh, certain intentions uh, uh, in the region and just want to make peace and um, uh, um, enhance economic uh, activities. So perhaps something like that could be could be useful if uh, some Asian countries are, do, do actually get involved or sponsor some kind of a, a, a dialogue like this that involves not just academics but perhaps starting there moving up towards 1.5. You know uh, some practitioners as well, uh, or even um, um, you know a government, uh, 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 you know
2: officials, uh, as it were. Maybe Ahmed wants to add something. No, I'm fine. I think our time is off now, so we need to. Uh,
0: uh, okay, but uh, thank you so much uh, to uh, to uh, both our speakers and of course uh, Dr. Sandhya. And uh, 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 you know. Uh, uh, what uh, Dr Abdullah has just said actually alludes to what Dr Sagar also mentioned. The role of these Asian countries. Uh, you had mentioned about Quad, uh, uh, Japan, India, uh, you know South uh, South Korea, and of course we may add to that uh, Australia. Australia. So, yes, and. Uh, uh, maybe uh, we can request MEI to really uh, give it some something and uh, um, maybe I mean this kind of platform could be created and uh, before uh, uh, signing off I would like to thank uh, all our speakers uh, Dr. Sagar, Dr. Babu, and uh, Dr. Dina. and uh, I would like to thank uh, you all the audience on behalf of uh, Middle East Institute uh, National University of Singapore for uh, taking time to uh, <laughs> join us. I would like to thank Middle East Institute for organizing this important, very important event and uh, our event team led by Sharon. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, here is uh, we are signing off. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you very much and goodbye. I wish you all the best. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye-bye.